0: Um, take your Bibles and turn in them to the book of Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians. There are two of them. Uh, we're looking at Second Thessalonians, and uh, it's one of the letters of Paul, probably one of the earlier letters of Paul. And uh, I've been wanting to dive into this book for some time, and I think it's been sort of confirmed to me, just some of the questions I've been asked over the last number of months, that this is a great place to go right now and to see what God has to say for um, to His church. Uh, Thessalonica was sort of the northern capital of Macedonia. I believe it was established by Philip of Macedon. He was the father of Alexander the Great, about 350 years before Paul got there. Uh, the southern sort of main capital of Macedonia was Athens and so you kind of get a a sense of these uh, cities. Uh, Thessalonica was um, situated quite well. It was situated on a um, a great seaport, and so it had a lot of commerce that came to it and through it from the sea, but it was also on a main trade route, and so it had many people coming and going with their goods, and uh, of course, with all of that commerce and All of the the foreigners and all of what takes place in a big city, there was all kinds of uh, things that weren't great that would take place in the city that accompanied those things. Uh, In the midst of all of that, they, like we, um, were in the midst of just incredible change and crazy circumstances. They had just come out of all the wars with uh, Philip and Alexander. The Roman Empire was doing its thing to conquer and to make war and to subdue people. They had famines, they had, uh, they had uh, economic woes, they had political struggles. In fact, that was part of why they were so concerned about Paul bringing into their city this teaching about Christ, is they didn't want to lose their status as a free city. Uh, so they had uh, political concerns that uh, they were working through. And it's in that sort of environment, and so much more, that the gospel came to them. I think in the world in which we live now, we are living in a crazy world. I I use that phrase a lot, it seems, but we are living in a a world that is changing, changing rapidly. And it's not all good change. Uh, It's change that threatens us. It's change that um, uh, keeps us up at night. There are wars. Uh, There are global health issues. There are economic challenges that we are all facing now. There are Uh, worldwide political shifts that are changing the direction of our world, the thinking of our world. There are climate concerns. There are uh, philosophical and uh, spiritual changes that are taking place. I'm beginning to familiarize myself in in ways. I've been aware of these things, but I think I need to dive into them a little bit more. Uh, But certainly with this whole trend towards transhumanism, uh, and transhumanism is really uh, another attempt to get rid of God. It's really taking science and applying it to evolution and determining that we can maybe reach immortality, that we can change genetic structures, that. Uh, we can become transhuman, so to speak. And so that is a, a, it's gaining momentum in the world in which we live. There certainly is this metaverse, which I'm beginning to learn a lot about, but which is an attempt to create another reality. And it is a reality, not like the physical reality that we live in, but it's another reality. It's a a way that people interact. It's a way that people will connect. It's a way that they do this um, without physicality. Uh, But it has its own dangers, I believe. Um, uh, And then there's this whole move in our world to globalism. Uh, a, A people of the globe, a global humanity, who don't worship the creator, they worship creation. And we see this just spreading in the world in which we live. And all of these things come to bear on us as believers. Because all of these things are in opposition to the worship of God. They are in opposition to the word of God. They are in opposition to the testimony of Christ. And the people of Thessalonica were suffering terribly as they embraced Christ and rejected some of the worldly solutions to the things that they were going through. And so we read in the Bible that as we come into this, uh, these last days, which again are the days between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, as we move towards the end of this age, it will be an age of trouble. And it will be an age of affliction. And it will be an age in which the church comes under incredible attack. Or by, by the church, I mean the people of God. I was reading through a few texts, which I think many of you are familiar with, but it helps to read them so we hear them again. Um, first, in Daniel, there are a number of texts that uh, Daniel uh, that are contained in Daniel that describe uh, the world in, and as it moves to the end, what it will look like. There was a fourth beast that came up as the the Lord is describing uh, to Daniel the progression of the world. And he says, Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet and about the 10 horns that were on its head and the other 10 that came up before which were which 3 of them fell off the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions and as i looked this horn made war with the saints and prevailed and then you jump over to revelation chapter 13 And there you read about the beast that comes from the sea, and part of the reality that will be our reality. And we are living in this reality now. We just find it increasing in intensity. But John describes that this beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And then we come back to 2 Thessalonians and we read in there again of uh, what is going on and how the people are faring and how Paul describes the, the world in which we live as it works towards its conclusion. And there he describes the man of rebellion and, and the man of lawlessness that will be revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. There's this move towards um, replacing the God of heaven and earth, the only God, the God who is real and which changes everything, with ourselves as God or creation as God. And in the midst of all of that, the God of heaven is blasphemed. I said this morning in the first service, do you sometimes feel that you live in this context that is just anti-God? That the language and the direction and the tone is, and the activities of the world in which we live are just opposed to everything that God represents? We have to read, or don't have to, but you read the book of Revelation and you get a sense of what these end times will look like, what the last days contain. That, again, those days are from the coming of Christ to his return. In the book of Revelation, although it is filled with a lot of symbols and signs which are hard to understand in their details, there are a lot of things that you get the sense of, yeah, that's true, I get that, that's right, even though I, I don't understand it fully when I on first reading But there is an incredible description of the world in which we live that's laid out for us in the book of Revelation. I was reading some of the words of Jesus uh, this past week in, in Matthew chapter 25. And he's talking to his disciples who come to him with a question. And their question is, I think, a question that many of us have been asking ourselves. Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Isn't that what we're asking? I think that's part of why I want to go into Second Thessalonians because I want an opportunity to talk about these things and to remind us what the Bible says because there are those that are coming to us and saying, oh, that's a bunch of hooey. That will never happen. This is what it's going to look like and we have to say, no, what does the Bible say? What, do, what does prophecy say? And so the disciples were concerned even in their own time, what will the end of the age look like? And so Jesus says to them, See that no one leads you astray. That is worth stopping on for a a, a moment, even there. Do you know that there is so much in this world that is trying to lead you astray? Your children astray? Your grandchildren astray? To move them away from the Word of God? To move them away from the path of righteousness? To move them away from their confidence in Jesus Christ? See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. So some of these things are a reminder to us that, yeah, the end is coming, but it's not yet. And he goes on and he says, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased. Do you get a sense that lawlessness is increasing in our world? You just look what's happening in the States right now with a decision that has come down from the Supreme Court. And the rhetoric is that it's saying, we're not gonna follow the law. We're not gonna obey what the justices describe. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Lawlessness is just growing in this world. It's growing in our hearts. And we have to be careful as people of God not to allow it to flourish there. But there's so much in the scripture that says as we move towards the end of the age, it will be characterized by lawlessness. And the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So as we wrestle with these things in the world in which we live, it's natural to ask questions, so where are we? And as we come to the book of Thessalonians, how do we stand in the shadow of the coming of Christ? We know he's coming. The scripture tells us he's coming. We have believed and hope and we watch for it and we look for it, but we suffer. We are persecuted. We are afflicted. We are hated. We wrestle with lawlessness. We hear of wars. We hear of rumors of wars. How are we to stand in the light of this? And this is one of the main themes that Paul addresses as he writes this second letter to this group of new and young believers in Thessalonica. I want to just unpack the, the first couple verses. I'll, I'll actually read the first five verses, but we're only going to spend some time in the first uh, few verses. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father, And the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you is for one another, is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God, for your steadfastness of faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. As we begin to think about this letter, It's maybe at least helpful to just stop for a moment and say, well, who sent the letter and why? I don't think there's any reason to doubt that the letter came from the hand of Paul. There seem to be three that were involved there. He says, Paul, Savanus, and Timothy. Uh, I think probably what that does is certainly helps the people of uh, this new church realize that. Timothy had just left them and gone back to Paul with a report. And so he's just affirming, yeah, I got that report. And yes, we are in agreement in the things that I'm writing for you. Paul was the primary author of the letter, but Sylvanus and Timothy were part of the church when it was first birthed. They were part of the church. Uh, They loved it. They prayed for it. They were concerned about it. These three were traveling companions in a number of different circumstances, but they were certainly part of the beginning of this church. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 17. Silvanius is probably also Silas that we read a number of times in the book of Acts. He accompanied Paul and others on missionary journeys. He accompanied Barnabas on missionary journeys. He was actually called a, a prophet. Uh, he was a man committed to the work of the Lord, committed to the gospel, committed to its spread. And Timothy, we know also, was a young man who, uh, who through his grandmother and his mother, was brought into a trust in Jesus and a commitment to the gospel. And Paul had picked him up as a traveling companion as well. And so the three of them were those that were sent by the Spirit of God and used by God to the establishment of this church in Thessalonica. As I was just reflecting on these three and what they did, I am so happy and thankful that people are committed to go with the good news. How else will we hear? How else will we hear and yes, somebody goes? How else will people be saved unless somebody preach to them? It's so critical that we understand this and have the same conviction in our own hearts and lives that it matters that when God gives us opportunities, we open our mouth. It matters that when God gives us resources, that we support our missionaries around the world, not only those that we support through the church, but you might have your own that you think of and that you support both financially and prayer. Because people need to hear the gospel. It's through the gospel that they come to faith in Jesus Christ and an understanding of the word of God. We heard from Brianna of her work in in Kenya. Uh, Not too long ago, we had Josh and Jamie who were here from Turkey. And uh, I think this last weekend, they had 50 baptisms across that country of people who had come to faith in Christ. We know of uh, Josh and Jenny Smolders, who are uh, wrestling and working and seem to be hitting roadblock after roadblock as they translate the word of God into a language that has never ever been translated in scripture. So that these people will for the first time ever be able to hear the gospel. Thank God for those that go with the good news of the gospel who have beautiful feet. Can you recall who first shared the word of God with you? Can you recall that person that God put in your path? The mother or the father or the friend or the workmate who first shared with you the good news? Thank the Lord for those who are committed to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, as the scripture tells us. But I want to spend a little bit of time, probably most of the rest of that, I'm just talking about the church I think it matters that we work through and think through this concept of church because this letter is written to the church of the Thessalonians. I don't know about you, but what do you think about? What's the first sort of things that come into your head when you hear the word church? What goes through your head? Like, do you think of a building? I'm going to church church. Do you think of a great rock structure somewhere in Europe with stained glass uh, windows and, uh, and wonderful acoustics in the building? Do you think of the church as uh, something that is driven by programs and uh, something that is fueled by those that, uh, that, that drive those programs? Is it sort of an administrative structure? I want to just take a few minutes and talk about the church here because it's something to which Paul gives thanks for, and it's something that he boasts about. He's not giving thanks for a wonderful building in Thessalonica. They didn't have one yet. They were a brand new church. Who knows where they met? He wasn't boasting because they had massive numbers and a great budget and and, incredible programs. He tells us what he gives thanks for. He says that we ought to give thanks to you, brothers. It is right because your faith is growing. There's Your faith is a personal reality. The church is a people and it's a people who, who God has changed and the gospel is taking root. And so he says, I give thanks that your faith is growing abundantly and your love for everyone is increasing. And then he says, and I boast about you. And again, when he's talking to the church in Corinth from where he wrote this, he's not saying, Brian, you ought to go to Thessalonica and see their building. It's just an amazing building. I don't know how they've put it up so quickly. He says, no, let me tell you about those people and how they're enduring affliction and how they're suffering and how they're being persecuted because of their commitment and their steadfastness to God. So you begin to get the picture that the church is a people. People. It's a people that is gathered together. It's a people that has been called individually by God and then gathered to assemble as a group of people. It's not a building. It's not, it's not ministries. It's, it's not administration. It's not programs. It's a people, a gathered people. And we've been challenged by this the last couple of years, haven't we? It's really put a strain on our ecclesiology, our understanding of what the church is, how the church gathers, how the church meets. And I'm still wrestling through this. I'm trying to work it out in my head. I'm, I'm not being critical or judgmental. I'm just trying to process in my head. What does it mean to be the church? How does the church gather? And I understand the tensions that we've gone through. I understand that sometimes or there are health reasons that keep us away from the people of God. I understand that there's other reasons that, that keep us away from the people of God, but that's not normal, I don't believe. That's not what the scripture calls the gathering of God's people. You know, there's these growing emphasis on alternative churches. I was listening to something the other day as I was driving about the challenge of the whole metaverse and, and people putting on, go- on goggles and experiencing a whole new reality. It's not just, not just something little, it's a whole new reality. They immerse themselves into this reality as they sit in their living room chair or as they sit in their den in front of their computer. And is that an acceptable alternative for the church? Can you gather with a pair of goggles on and, and have communion with the body of Christ, with the called out ones that are assembled together? I don't know if, if we can. It's that the Bible talks about us as a gathered physical community. I'm still working it through. I hope you're still working it through and you're wrestling it. But I, I hope that as you even gathered here today, there has been something about it which, which warms your heart. To see other people, to hear them singing, to see them worshiping, to maybe have greeted one or two of them when you came in. So as we think about the church, one of the ways to think about it is how it relates to God and the Godhead. If you've been around um, Christian circles at all, you know that we talk about the Trinity That God is one, but he's revealed to us in three persons. He's one essence, but in three persons. So we talk about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God, yet three persons. And the reality of the Trinity is that they're all involved in our salvation. God is the one that planned it. Christ is the one that accomplished it. And the Spirit of God is the one who applies the work of Christ in a saving way to us. We talk about the Trinity when it comes to prayer. We pray to the Father in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. We talk about the Trinity when it comes to creation. Well, we also talk about the Trinity when it comes to the church. It's a wonderful reality when we think about it, but do you know that the church is called the people of God? Very specifically, the people of God. Peter describes it this way, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellent excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light once you were not a people but now you are God's people do you know that you're not just one here one there uh, you know we're we're not made up of just uh, individuals we are God's people uniquely belonging to God his treasured possession Do you think of that when you come together today? Did did we think of that as we drove into the parking lot and we walked in the building? Wow, it is great to be together with God's people this morning. Or what about the body of Christ? Ephesians tells us uh, uh, in a couple places that the church is also the body of Christ. In verse 23, it says, Christ is the head of his church, his body. In another place, it talks about God's marvelous and immeasurable power towards us who believe that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places far above rule and authority, power, dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet, gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. We're not detached. We're connected with Christ. Christ. We are his hands, we are his feet, we are his eyes, we are his ears. We are his instruments of righteousness, we are his instruments of peace. So as we think about it, as you come into the building, as you came today, and maybe you can come next week, but do you come sensing the fact that I am coming to be part of the body of Christ today? I'm attached with these people. I'm connected with these people. We are united and we have one leader and it's Christ. He is our head. We submit to him. We worship him. He is Lord over us. Or what about the fact that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit? The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament people didn't know anything of being part of the body of Christ, nor did they know anything of the, of the, of the Holy Spirit residing in them. The, the, the Old Testament's push and goal was how do we regain the presence of God? How do we regain the presence of God among us? And so the tabernacle and the temple were, were steps towards that as, as the God came down and his glory filled The temple. But they didn't know what it was to have the Spirit of God dwell in them as the body of Christ. We do. And it's the Spirit of Christ who creates new congregations. It's the Spirit of Christ, who, or of the Holy Spirit, that raises up leaders amongst the church. It's the Spirit of, uh, of God that gives you and I gifts to serve one another in the body of Christ. And so, as we come together and as we meet, we realize that we are an assembly of called out ones, called to proclaim the excellencies of God. We are coming to be among the people of God. We are part of the body of Christ, and we are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. It's not just about me when we come and gather here. What about some other things about the church? It, and they're just things that I'm working through and, 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 and that I think made a difference even to the church of the Thessalonikas, and you get a sense of this. Uh, it's, a, it's a local body. Do you understand that? We are the local group of believers in Parksville that meet here in this building. There are other expressions of the local church in our community, but we are one of those local expressions of the people of God. We could meet in a field. We could meet in somebody's barn. We could meet beside the river. But it's a gather, a local gathering of God's people that assemble together as the people of God, the body of Christ, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit to worship God, to hear from God, to be in God's presence. But you know that there's also a worldwide expression of that, right? That, that not only are there many uh, communities of God, uh, uh, churches, local churches on the island... There are local churches around the world, all of them expressions of the people of God. There's a vastness, there's a greatness to the body of Christ. We're not unique, we're not alone, we're not all there is. We are part of a worldwide body known as the universal church for whom Christ died, through which Christ is building up his body or his church and he will one day come back for this universal church. He's not just coming back for us at Parksville. Although we might like to think that. Could you imagine if that was the case? Could you imagine how full this place would be every Sunday? I want to be with that group because Christ is coming to get them. He's coming back for all of his church. They sing in Revelation, worthy are you to take the scroll and opens its seals for you were slain by your blood. You ransomed people of God, for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. There is a whole host of God's people worldwide that meet locally as we are. But you know also that there is a church that's meeting in heaven right now? That when we gather together, even when we sang together today and we worshiped together, we weren't worshiping alone. That we were worshiping with a whole vast number of myriads in heaven of not only angels but the saints that have gone ahead of us that are in presence of god but you have come to mount zion to the city of the living god the heavenly jerusalem to innumerable angels in festal gathering To the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That is your loved ones who have died in Christ, your children who have died in Christ, your husband or wife that has died in Christ, your mother or father or brother who has died in Christ. They are among that heavenly church now of the righteous made perfect. And there's great hope even as we grieve to know that those of our loved ones who have died in Christ, they are right now in the company of God before the face of Christ, worshiping him. It's the fullness of Christ. And then one day, I think we all know that the church will be fully and finally and together before Christ. And you know when our first gathering will be? the marriage supper of the Lamb. When God's people over the ages, around the world, all bought with the blood of Christ, will be raised, will be reunited with their bodies, will be reunited with all of those who are part of the redeemed and we will sit as the whole company of redeemed at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The church is more than that as well. We mentioned really briefly that there's a geographic aspect to the church. This was a group of people that met in Thessalonica, just as we are a group of people who are meeting here in Parksville today. Thank the Lord for the geographical assembling of God's people. But you know, it's more than that as well. There's a spiritual union that we have. It says to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a physical or a spiritual reality to our worship today. There's a spiritual reality to our gathering here today. We are in the presence of God. We have been gathered by God to worship him. It's not just a physical exercise that we go through and sing a few songs and see a few people, but we are in God. We are in the presence of God. And we have been brought into being as a people of God by God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an amazing sort of um, reality to think about that, that not only do we worship here in person, but that we worship spiritually. There's a communion with us and God himself. I don't know if you think of that again as you come to worship on the Lord's day. This is amazing that not only do I get, get to worship with a group of people, but we've been brought together in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to just think a little bit about God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I I don't want to skip through these things too quickly. Do you know that? Does that mean anything to you? You know, we don't just come to worship God although we worship God come to worship God our Father. It's a wonderful reality about God, this fatherness of God, this this compassion of God that is exhibited to us as our Father. And it's not just something that's part of the New Testament. I think sometimes we, we have in our hearts and minds that the God of the Old Testament is a particular way and the God of the New Testament is a particular way and they, they don't combine. Well, do you know that the fatherhood of God, I think, grows out of the Old Testament? I don't think, I know it does. For instance, in, in Deuteronomy chapter one, verse 30, there we, God is described as the father who carries his children. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you. Just as he did for you in Egypt before our eyes or before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son. Lovelands, that's the Old Testament. Isn't that a wonderful picture? I don't know how many times I have taken my boys and thrown them on my shoulder whether we're walking through a river or whether they're exhausted and their little feet can't carry them anymore or whether I just want to feel their arms wrapped around my forehead. Just a beautiful picture of father and son. Well, this is what God is saying. is I carry you on my shoulders as a father carries his son. That's the Old Testament. And then we read in Deuteronomy chapter 2, or Deuteronomy 8, He says, remember the Lord your God, how he led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then fed you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man doesn't live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out. Your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart. I like that. Know then in your heart. That as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. We experience the fatherly love of God in his discipline of us. In fact, discipline is one of the ways we know we are loved. A father who disciplines their child loves their child. Psalm 103, verse 8 to 14. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. It's wonderful to witness, sometimes at a distance, a father demonstrating compassion to one of their children. Maybe they've fallen off a bike. Maybe they've hurt themselves. Maybe they've got stung by a bee. Um, Maybe they're just scared and the father just scoops them up and sits them on their lap and loves them up and you see his compassion. You hear it in his voice. As a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord God has compassion towards you. Here is a God the Father who carries his people, protecting them. Here is a God, a Father who disciplines his people for our benefit. Here is a God who pities us and has compassion on us, remembering that we are but dust. You wonder, where did Jesus get the notion that God was his Father? Have you ever thought that? How did Jesus all of a sudden start calling God his Father? I'm not entirely sure of what the relationship of the Godhead was before time began and before the existence of the world. I don't know if it was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I, I suspect it might be, but on the level of deity. But when Christ became a man, when he was born and became a human, he began to relate to God as his Father in a completely different way, a way that you and I do as humans. And I'm sure that that came from reading texts like this in the Old Testament. Why, why else would, would, he, would he have this notion that when he was 12 years old at the temple and he was left, left behind and his, his parents came back and he said, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? An incredible relationship that Jesus had with the father at 12 years old and then at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased I think this notion of God our Father is beautiful because it portrays an intimacy. I think it's an attractive intimacy. Why is it that the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray? I think it's because they saw in him. I don't they they saw in him a connection with God that they had never seen. They had never witnessed. There was this intimacy that Jesus had with God his Father that they wanted something of. They wanted to understand. Teach us to pray like you do. I've been in the presence of people who pray and it's very mechanical. I've been in the presence of people who pray and it's very showy. I've done that before. I've been in the people presence of people who pray, and I just sit there, and I go, wow. It's just an awe of their intimacy with God. That's why Jesus said, well, this is how you pray. Our Father, who art in heaven. Isn't it amazing that we are called as a people of God, not just to relate to God, a king, the creator of heaven and earth, but as a people of God, He is our Father, Abba, Father. In that, there's this incredible reality of belonging, that we are adopted. Adoption is a beautiful thing. And in the physical world, not all of us are adopted, but in the spiritual world, every single one of us is adopted. Every single one of us, God has set his finger upon us. He has set his love upon us. He says, I want you to be my child. That's an incredible reality. Incredible thought. We've been adopted and as the Bible says, how, um, where is it in John, um, that the love of God, um, oh, John 1, 3, somebody help me. It'll come uh, at some point. It's a wonderful thing to be called children of God, sons and daughters of God. There's a solidarity that we experience as a church. Do you you know that? I, I look around here, and we're a really different bunch of people. And I'm glad we are a different bunch of people. But you know that we're brothers and sisters? And as brothers and sisters, that ought to temper our relationships with one another. It ought to temper how we talk to one another. It ought to temper how we look to one another, look at one another, how we feel towards one another. We're not just a, a group of individuals that, that, that we can do without, um, or that we can do with some. We're brothers and sisters because we share a heavenly father. He is our father through adoption. And the second thing it notes, and I'll I'll, I'll really end here, and I won't say much about but he says, our Lord Jesus Christ. This world is full of lawlessness. We all want to be a law unto ourselves, but when you become a Christian, you don't just get a ticket into heaven. It's not like you get sort of um, uh, salvation insurance or fire insurance, as some people want to say. What you, what you do when you become a Christian is you have now a Lord over you. A beautiful Lord, but one who you submit to, one who you obey, one who you follow, one who you are committed to die for. Um, where he leads, you will go. We become his disciples, we become his followers. There is no other way. So as a people of God, we are characterized by this belonging to God, and we are characterized by a submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. The wonderful blessings that flow from that. Peace and grace. I'll let you work those through on your own today. I think as we work through this though, as we come into the days in which we live and we are in them and they're, they're, they're tumultuous and there is lawlessness and there are wars and rumors away, how do we stand? We stand because we are part of the redeemed. We stand because we have a Father in heaven who loves us. We stand because we have a Lord in heaven, Jesus Christ, who died for us and will guide us and direct us. We can be secure and safe and stand in the people of God, the church of God. May God help us as we face these days in which we live to stand in the shadow of the Lord's coming as a redeemed people of God. Father, we thank you for your word today. I pray that you'll help us to understand this incredible privilege that we have of being in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We may be made up of a diverse people, but we belong to the same family. Thank you, Father, that you are the father of us all. Behold what manner of love you have shown to us that we should be called your children. It's unexplainable, but we are. So help us, Father, as we Face this week, whatever it might hold for us, to know that we can stand because we are your children. Chosen by you, you will never let us go. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.